Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Son, can you hear me? Is it okay? This morning, uh, in the questions, uh, somebody was uh, appreciating that um, we could be reminded uh, to have fun or enjoy this practice, that it wasn't only about suffering. And I thought I'd expand a bit on that tonight. The Buddha taught this practice and these teachings for, as he said, um, to understand suffering and the end of suffering. And the first noble truth, there is suffering in life. Second, there's a cause of suffering. Third, there's an end to suffering. And fourth, there's a a path leading to the end of suffering. So you can see how there's a lot of um, emphasis and talk about suffering and how we can easily forget that um, he taught this as a path of the highest, deepest kind of happiness. The Buddha was called the happy one. And so I wanted tonight to explore the teachings and the way to hold this practice so that it is both an exploration of suffering and the end of suffering, the highest happiness and all the happinesses that are uh, found on the way. Mm. We can get very serious about practice. I know because I got very serious about my practice. Dead serious about my practice. Emphasis on the dead. And when I first got exposed to the teachings and uh, was so uh, inspired and and moved. Um, It was uh, amazing, as probably many people have your own stories about seeing the possibilities to open up to working with whatever pain or sorrow we hold and see that there's a path that leads to freedom. For myself, as probably a number of people here can um, understand. I had a lot of internal suffering and sorrow. My life looked pretty good on the outside, but I didn't like myself very much. 
I was very insecure, very shy growing up as a, as a young boy. Um, and when I heard the teachings um, back in uh, the summer of 1974, the first year at Naropa, what was called Naropa Institute then, and I heard Joseph Goldstein, who had just come back from spending seven years practicing in Asia, and he was saying it's possible to not be run by your neurotic thoughts. That was a complete revelation to me. It's possible to really find a deep sense of ease and well-being within. And it was as much his expression as what he was saying that... Um, inspired me. <clears throat> he sounded like he was from New York. I was from New York. He didn't look that much different from me, but it was clear that he knew something that I didn't know, and I wanted to find out what that was. And so I just really went for it um, and was very inspired and had what is called a, a long honeymoon period. I'd say to my friends, you just have to be mindful. You just have to be mindful. They kind of kept their distance from me as I got more into the the proselytizing. I learned after a while to just do much softer sell, and it's 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 much better to just be than say and try to uh, convince. Anyway, I had that long honeymoon period for, that lasted for quite some time, did lots of retreats, lots of long retreats like this one and, and, and longer. And then at some point, as I said, I got very um, serious about my, about my practice. Uh, and I misunderstood some teachings that would be easy to um, misconstrue and felt that somehow my, at, by that time, natural um, joy and aliveness was somehow um, off the path. Not here so much, but deep inside. And I'll, I want to share with you a couple of teachings that you could see how easily one can uh, misunderstand. This is uh, a couple of um, very <clears throat> high... Uh, important um, uh, understandings in the practice that can be distorted. One is, uh, I think it might have been mentioned here, I, I forget, but the word samvega. Was samvega mentioned at all? Yeah. So this is the uh, one definition of samvega by uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. The oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. Are we having fun? Yeah. You know, you hear that and there can be this sense of, oh, this is really a, 
you know, we're stuck in this trap and let's get out as fast as possible. And the, the operative words there that are, that really make this a very rich and important understanding is the sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. And when we can see there's another pointer to true happiness and well-being, we start to reorient ourselves and see the game isn't about getting as much as you can, as fast as you can, more than the next guy, and making sure that everybody sees how successful you are. So Samvega is a really important um, um, revelation and it can reorient, but it can also easily be seen to, um, uh, to, dis to uh, encourage to get out of this samsara as if it's not okay for, for you to feel happiness in your life. I sat on a retreat with Upandita, who um, Kamala has mentioned a, a few times. Uh, he's a, a, a really, he was an amazing meditation master and understanding how the practice works. But on this three-month retreat, every night he would uh, end, as I recall, with the, the um, final benediction, may you speedily escape from the woes of this world and attain the bliss of Nibbana. Again, how easy. Let's get out of here. And so I took that teaching to heart. Here's another teaching, a very high um, um, understanding on uh, the theme of Nibbida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A. Nibbida, <clears throat> well, I'll just read a couple of translations. Nibbida, <clears throat> One should abide in the utter disgust for the aggregates. Nibbida being translated as utter disgust. And aggregates meaning this mind-body process that we call me. One should abide in utter disgust for this mind-body process. Whoa, okay. Another translation. <clears throat> When one is practicing in accordance with the Dhamma, one should dwell engrossed in revulsion towards the aggregates. Revulsion. I had a hard enough time looking in the mirror and, you know, and not wincing and saying, oh my goodness, is that really me? And here the teaching is you should have revulsion and utter disgust for this mind-body process for these aggregates. But that has to do more with translation than the deeper meaning underneath. As uh, Andy Olinsky, who's a um, Buddhist scholar, used to run the uh, study center in Barry, says a better translation than disgust or revulsion is one should develop a disenchantment with regard to the aggregates. 
disenchantment, not being enchanted, breaking the spell that this mind and body and the packaging and all the other ones that we see have usually over us. And when we break the spell so we're not so hooked, caught in appearance, image, either in conceit or in um, uh, the other side of mana, which is sometimes called the conceit of I am, not feeling good enough. When you're not enchanted by how things are supposed to be in the messages that you hear in our world, ah, you break the spell. And then you can honor and appreciate this body and this mind, like we did metta recently, or forgiveness. It's a very important thing to learn to embrace this body and mind that you've been issued, not with attachment, not with ownership or pride, but appreciation. Here's a teaching I love from Ajahn Sumedho, who um, is the uh, elder in Theravadan Buddhism, Western Theravadan Buddhism. He was uh, Ajahn Chah's first Western disciple and actually um, was like Jack's older brother when, uh, when Jack was practicing with Ajahn Chah in Thailand. And Ajahn Sumedho was founding all of the monasteries, uh, Amaravati and and Abhayagiri and all around the, the world. Um, just a really um, wonderful teacher. And this is what he says. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, Theravada being the tradition that we're practicing here, way of the elders, the, uh, the earliest teachings of the Buddha as they've come down to us. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty if you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive that's a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, on impermanence, on satisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of experience. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics, rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have true insight, however, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them, we find joy. This is from the Buddha. One translation of the Dhammapada by Thomas Byram. He says, live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, 
in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. This is a, a good, a healthy thing to cultivate. The Dalai Lama in his book, a uh, beautiful book, The Art of Happiness, that he wrote a number of years ago, um, he starts out the book with this sentence. The purpose of life is to be happy. The purpose of life is to be happy. Just really let that land. See what it does. You might say, wait a moment. What is that about? Isn't it? What about awakening? What about all these other things? He says, go for the real happiness. Find where true happiness lies. And it will naturally allow all the beautiful qualities that are intrinsic in that happiness to shine through. That's different from the purpose of life is to have as much pleasure as you can and get as quick hit of, of uh, feeling good as you can. He says, go for the real happiness. So after I went through this period of um, losing my joy, I lost my joy. Thankfully, I didn't turn my back on the teachings on, on the Dharma, I decided I wanted to look and see what the Buddha actually had to say about happiness and joy besides the ones that we can experience in the ultimate freedom or in deep absorption states, which are very, very profound states of well-being. But there's other kinds of happinesses as well. And in fact, on many lists, there are lots of different uh, dimensions of well-being or joy. Joy is one of the Brahma Viharas, mudita, sympathetic joy. It is um, in, the, um, uh, in the development of mind, there's happiness, sukha, there's gladness, pamoja, there's bliss, PT, there's lots of different flavors of well-being. There's contentment and ease and equanimity. Joy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's in, a, in the, uh, the jhana factors and uh, a couple of the, the absorption states. So... As I looked at the teachings, I said, well, hold on a moment. What did the Buddha actually say about well-being? And I discovered three particular um, principles and teachings that made a lot of sense to me that I want to share with you. And hopefully you can use them as you practice uh, and apply them to the various um, dimensions of 
states of mind and, and um, moments as you're practicing to understand how we can actually develop and increase these wholesome states. So the first of these teachings is the Buddha's teaching on wise effort. You have seen wise effort. You probably have, we talked about it when I gave the talk on the uh, five faculties on effort and it's in the, the uh, Eightfold Path. And generally wise effort is spoken of as having a balanced effort, the effort to be mindful. But technically wise effort has four elements to it. Here's another little list for you if you can handle it. And they all have to do with wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. Two have to do with unwholesome states. Akusala, they're called. Unwholesome or unhealthy states, which are states of suffering. Greed, hatred, delusion, jealousy, lust, um, anger, and all the other emotions that we probably know all so well, worry, the hindrances, uh, wanting, fear, all of those are unwholesome states because they are suffering in the moment and when we get wrapped up in them and don't find a way out, we, um, uh, we continue to perpetuate them. So he said, guard against unwholesome states when you can do whatever you can to not have them stimulated. And one of the things about coming on retreat that's so powerful is that we minimize uh, the stimulation of wholesome states. There's not a bar on the land. There's uh, not that much that you can get caught up in your, uh, your desires. You know, lunch is basically it. Or maybe tea time if they have something fun there or the eight preceptors. Oh, there's chocolate there. Well, you know. But it's pretty minimal. But you probably notice there's still wanting that arises in the mind. Um, but he says, do what you can to minimize your um, uh, activation of wholesome states. Guard against the wholesome states, uh, unwholesome states from arising. And then the second of the wise efforts is to um, overcome them when they have arisen, because they're part of life. He's not saying never have an unwholesome state. It's just part of being human. There's sadness, there's fear, there's loss, there's wanting, there's um, um, confusion, all of those. It's part of being human. And he says there are ways to overcome them so you're not getting lost and caught up in them. Okay? And then there are, and that's what we're practicing here, mindfulness and, and metta and all kind, taking the precepts, guarding against them, etc., etc. And we can have a refuge in our practice that helps us work with these difficult states. Then the other two aspects of, white, or of right effort are developing wholesome states, kusala, states of well-being that feel good in the moment and also when cultivated without attachment lead to greater and greater sense of well-being. 
the third of the wise efforts is to cultivate these wholesome states like doing metta practice or compassion practice or equanimity practice or mindfulness practice, which is the best of all. And the fourth aspect of wise effort is to maintain and increase wholesome states when they arise. He says, this is a good thing. Now your mind might be going, well, hold on a moment. Isn't that attachment? Did that occur to anybody here? He says it's a good thing when a wholesome state arises to learn how to maintain and, and, and sustain it and increase it. However, here's the tricky part. If you're having a wholesome state and you say, yeah, bring it on. You've just turned it into an unwholesome state. As soon as there's any kind of grasping, attachment, you've gotten caught in contraction, which is the definition or one concomitant of an unwholesome state. So it's not by grasping at it, but anyway, I'll just say right there for now, it's a good thing to develop wholesome states. So that's the first one. To know where happiness really lies and to allow uh, for even to be increased. The second teaching that went along with this is with the wholesome state, there is a feeling of uplift or gladness that arises. And in one discourse, he says, that gladness connected with what is wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. That gladness that feeling of uplift connected with the wholesome is an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. And you can probably see for yourself how this works. You might be in a grouchy mood or um, just kind of uh, funky or uh, not feeling very good about life and something good happens. Suppose somebody says, oh, hi, how are you? Or you, uh, you see a, a lizard going across the road and all of a sudden it's, oh, oh, look at that. In a moment, it can dissolve. And in this discourse, he gives the example. He says, if you're, for instance, in the middle of an act of generosity, he suggests, the Buddha suggests, thinking to yourself, oh, I'm being generous now. He says, this is a good thing. Oh, here's generosity. He's not saying, check it out. I hope everybody sees how generous I am. No, he's saying, just notice how good it feels for generosity to move through me. 
You know that feeling when there's just a spontaneous act of a random act of kindness and it just comes through you and wow, that feels so good. He says, don't miss it. This is how you maintain and increase a wholesome state. Not by grasping at it, but by being very present for how good it feels. Appreciation is different from attachment. But it's an interesting thing how we are often wired up to notice what's wrong. That's what keeps us alive as a species. We have this almond-shaped cluster of neurons in our brain called the amygdala that scans the horizon for what can go wrong. And it takes a bit more practice to look for what is going right. Thich Nhat Hanh has a, a great, um, great teaching. He says, uh, try the practice of what's not wrong. He says, uh, for instance, oh, last week I had a toothache. I don't have a toothache now. How wonderful. I read a, a, a study that says for most people, it takes, after one negative encounter, it takes about seven positive encounters to come back to balance. You know, somebody is sharp with you or who do you think you are? And we can be kind of shaking for a little while and seven people say, oh, hi, nice to see you. One, oh, how are you doing today? Two, right? After a while, you kind of come back, okay? Unless you practice not taking in the negative and letting it stick and really um, simmer and fester and not to take it in to the point of overwhelm and to take in all the good. We have what's called in neuroscience a confirmation bias that we will find what we look for. And if we are looking for how things aren't going to work out, we will, our brain will actually pick out and notice everything that confirms that and will miss things that don't conform to that hypothesis. So if, you're, if you tend to see what's wrong or tend to have a, a, a gloomy outlook on, on life, oh, we are going down the tubes, you'll have ample evidence for that. Or people are, you gotta watch out for them. They're gonna, they're gonna get you. You'll also have a vigilant attitude that keeps on noticing that and perhaps misses all the times that, uh, that it's not so. But if you start to look, you have the belief that basically human beings want to be loved want to feel safe, and if they're given a little bit of, of kindness and love, they will um, uh, let their goodness shine. Not always, but if you look for it, you actually activate it and draw it out. Or if you look and see, 
gosh, how amazing it is to be alive, which can start to happen with practice. Wow, just being grateful for being here and being alive. Once you start looking for it, then you start noticing it uh, in, in everywhere. Uh, Rick Hansen, one of my good friends and neuroscience experts who's written a, a, a lot of books, Buddha's Brain and Hardwiring Happiness and things like that, Resilient. He has a formula. He says, when you are feeling a moment of well-being, just the way the brain research works, he is um, convinced that if you pay attention to it for 15 seconds, and if you do that six times in a day, I know that's 90 seconds of well-being if you can handle it, and you do that over a two-week period, you will start to notice uh, a greater uh, development of well-being, both because you're deepening the neural pathways and you're starting to be on the lookout for what's good, because you'll find what you look for. Here we are, you got a whole month or two months, you can afford 90 seconds of well-being in a day. And in fact, every time you happen to notice well-being, don't miss it. Because mindfulness amplifies, it not only cultivates well-being, it amplifies it when it's here. So this is something I really want to encourage you in your practice to include, along with working with the difficult, the challenges, absolutely essential, both. So that's the second. One, noticing and cultivating wholesome states. Two, being with the gladness, that moment of uplift that's connected with it. And the third teaching of the Buddhas, which is confirmed in neuroscience, the Buddha in one discourse um, says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon becomes the inclination of their mind. Can you argue with that? That's what practice is about. In modern neuroscience, the, the words are neurons that fire together, wire together. Same thing. Buddha was a pretty good neuroscientist 2,600 years ago. So over time, as you practice noticing the wholesome and cultivating it and being really present for it, you start to um, look with that perspective as well as seeing all the, the challenges. He did say, don't be afraid to open up to the suffering. Don't be afraid. Find the courage to work with the difficult, but not just to get stuck there. That this is a, a path to happiness, to true happiness. And the more you can cultivate that, the more you will um, awaken it in yourself and 
awaken it in others as well. And this particularly during these times is such an important thing to remember because I don't think I have to tell you, these are hard times. They can shake our faith. They can uh, lead to uh, despair or hopelessness at times if our mind can go down that hole. They can uh, lead to feeling guilty. If I'm okay, what about all the suffering in the world? So I really encourage, and this is why I, I teach that Awakening Joy course, uh, this is not just about being quiet on a retreat. This is about cultivating well-being in our life. And I want to read to you um, a passage that I find really helpful by um, Howard Zinn, who um, wrote The People's History of the United States, the, the, the unvarnished history. He said all the not only the good things, but the, bad, the difficult things about our country here. And this is what he says about not getting stuck in despair. He says, an optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic, it's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. But if we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. Don't get so caught up on how terrible things are. Notice all the goodness in life. Yeah, we're, we're in difficult times. Yeah, there seems to be so much hatred and divisiveness in the world today, but there's never been as much consciousness. Never. There's never been as many caring people in the world who are doing what they can to make this a better world. That book, um, Blessed Unrest by Paul Hawken, who uh, decided to take a look at all the good, good, good movements and good organizations in the world, and he uh, determined there. And this was a number of years ago. There are between one and two million nonprofits doing and uh, good organizations who are committed to making this a better world. Don't miss that. And so to really see that this is a, a healthy and important thing to get in touch with all the well-being right inside of you. And it is inside of you. Sometimes people think, oh, I don't know. I think I lost my joy a long time ago or 
maybe I never had it or um, maybe I'll stumble upon it someplace. You were, you came into this world with happiness and joy. And when I say joy, I'm talking about all these states of well-being from contentment and ease and peace and happiness and delight, all the flavors of well-being. You were born a baby coming into this world. If he or she is fed and diapered and given a little bit of love, what do they do? They squeal with delight. I want to show you somebody who might remind you of who you are. This is um, William Milner from Melbourne, Australia. Just less than six months old. This taken. This was you. Do you remember? No, that was a long time ago. This was you. Your natural birthright. Here's a, another one with a sense of wonder. We come in with this sense of wonder. Wow. Wow. You say, well, maybe for a baby. I don't know, for adults. Actually, when an adult is put in an fMRI machine and they don't have physical pain or emotional pain, or stress, that's big right there. But when those aren't operating, what is shown to light up, we are conscious, calm, creative, caring, and content. That's what lights up in the brain when you're not stressed. Conscious, calm, creative, caring, and content. That's who you really are. And that's who you, um, you long, what you long to awaken as well. But you don't have to look for it outside of yourself. That's why when we take refuge in the Buddha, we're taking refuge in that birthright, that seed of awakening, that seed of goodness and caring. That's naturally who we are when our minds don't get in the way. <clears throat> So, how to uh, employ this in our practice? Mm. Important thing to realize is there are many wholesome states that we can cultivate. And when you have the intention to cultivate well-being without grasping, just what's called inclining the mind in that direction. Wise intention. This is the second link in the Eightfold Path. The Buddha said, intention, I tell you, is karma. Through body, speech, and mind, what we intend, we create. Or that famous start of the Dhammapada, mind is the forerunner of all things, or another translation. We are what we think. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind, 
and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. The Tibetans say, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. So the first step in this, and like in the Eightfold Path, once you see where happiness lies, true happiness, the, the, the next step is having the intention to go for it. And from that, the rest of the Eightfold Path unfolds. Speech, or actions, or livelihood, or uh, meditation practice, effort, mindfulness, concentration. But it starts with the intention. And one intention that often people don't really directly name, that it seems is very important, is the intention to be happy. You might have an intention to awaken or to uh, learn to overcome suffering or to love more. Uh, but to put well-being, like the Dalai Lama says, the purpose of life is to be happy. To put that right in the center, everything can unfold from that. Now this is not so easy for many people or for some people dare I let myself be happy or I'll be happy when when I find the right partner okay and you find just the right person and for maybe 18 months dopamine is going crazy through your body and then it's like oh who is this person now anyway now I believe in relationships I've been with my partner for uh, 39 years so I really believe in relationships, but after the dopamine wears off, it's, it's practice, it's work. Oh, how wonderful. I can learn where I get caught. I can learn how to open up my heart. You know, but it's not that when I find the right relationship, everything will be fine. As we know, how many end in separation. When I get the right job, that'll do it. When I make enough money, yeah, it doesn't do it. When I retire, then I'll be happy. Okay. Why wait? Okay. Why wait for your retirement? Life is happening right now. So I first want to just invite you to get in touch with uh, the intention, this intention, which is implicitly in your practice, you came here for well-being, but you might not name, I really want to go for happiness and well-being. Anybody who doesn't want to be happy here? And if you're a kind of person that says, if I'm really honest, I like being grumpy, that's just your way of being happy. Whatever turns you on. But if you look and take a look as you practice through, through the day here, when, when you look, you'll probably find that most everything you do, there is a motivation that says, this will make me feel a little better or this will make me feel a little less bad. Just check it out. 
there's something inside of you that is rooting for your happiness. It's often misguided, but it's there. And to get in touch with that place that truly is rooting for you. And just imagine if well-being is about learning more and more to cultivate wholesome states and not miss them, what happens as you keep on practicing that? So I just, maybe before we go on, invite you to close your eyes for a moment. And say you're here for the next three weeks or seven weeks. And besides learning to deal with all the challenges and the natural um, bumps in the road uh, that are part of practice, you learn more and more to notice all the good inside and around you. And that you get better and better at doing that and letting it nourish you as you carry on this profound work. And as you learn that here while you're on this retreat, you continue learning that in your life so that you more and more notice the good and really let it be taken in and nourish the wholesomeness the next six months, the next year, the next couple of years, and you get pretty good at opening to all the goodness in your life as well as working with all the challenges. The 10,000 joys as well as the 10,000 sorrows. And just imagine what it would feel like in your life and what it would feel like to be around you. If you can't have an image around it. And if this feels like a pretty good project, here's where the magic comes. Instead of wishing that would happen, Set the intention right now to do your part to help bring that about. No report card, no timetable. You're just facing in the direction committed to cultivate greater well-being inside. Intention is deciding to do your part, having a vision and a heartfelt decision and then letting life support you and being open to the unfolding. And then to widen that intention as the, the teachings talk about clear comprehension of purpose, where you see your own well-being, not just as a selfish act, 
but as something that will benefit everyone. That's what truly inspires. Your own well-being and happiness is a gift to everyone. Just stay connected to that. So it starts with the intention to face in that direction. Mindfulness is the key tool because when you are experiencing a wholesome state, then to uh, not miss it, let yourself rest in it, marinate in it. And then there are many wholesome states along the way that you can cultivate. Um, And that also includes the difficult. Our difficulties lead to our wholesome qualities as well, learning how to not be overwhelmed by them. Real People who really understand happiness are not going around smiling, smiley smile all the time, but they are able to deal with the dukkha in life without getting overwhelmed and grow and learn and deepen their compassion. And they also don't miss all the, the beauty and the goodness. So that's an essential piece in this whole process. And the Buddha had a lot to say about how that works. Maybe we'll talk about it in uh, future talks. Uh, But I just want to leave you uh, with one wholesome state to show how this, this works. And that is one of the most direct ways of opening the heart and um, cultivating the wholesome. uh, And that's gratitude. And John gave a a lovely talk that included gratitude. And um, it's something that we can keep on practicing. I just want to show you simply how this works when you pay attention to a wholesome state. So here's a little, another little exercise. Close your eyes for a moment and bring to mind some blessing in your life someone or something that you feel grateful to or grateful for. And have an image either of that person or that situation. And as you call to mind this blessing, just give a simple silent thank you right from your heart to that person or to life. Oh, thank you. And now let yourself enjoy that feeling of gratitude. Oh, thank you. Notice the landscape, how it feels in your body, how it feels in your mind, in your heart. Thank you. Take a Nice breath. And bring up another blessing. We can go for a few. 
someone, something. Have an image. A simple thank you right from your heart. Thank you. And then just enjoy it. This is a wholesome moment. Nice breath. One last one. Three's a charm in Buddhism. Bring up a, a blessing, an image, someone, something. A simple thank you. Thank you so much. Let yourself feel it. Just enjoy it. Nothing to grasp onto. Just don't miss it. Okay, so to close, I'll just read a passage I love from uh, Shantideva around this, around the feast of practice. Because the uh, amazing thing is that we're here and we have this opportunity to not only uh, work with, with life's challenges, but we are on a path of awakening. The the greatest happiness of all. As a blind person feels upon finding a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. The tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life. The bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life. The cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated. The sun that dispels darkness the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. So let's sit for just a moment.
Thank you. So, um, we'll have a walking when you go out for the night air for walking, or if you stay inside. If you if you do go outside, let yourself enjoy it. It's a if the sky is clear still, it's a great moon still out. Let yourself be touched by it. Wow, you know, be like that little baby. Wow, you know, Mm-mm. it's not cheating. It's okay. Yeah, don't grasp. Wow, if you're walking. Just enjoy the fresh air on you, or moving your body, or being here on a retreat, what you're giving yourself. And we'll come back for one last sitting and uh, chanting, and uh, I'll share a, a little uh, extra um, fun story uh, to tuck you in for those who uh, come to the sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.